Hello and welcome to the final episode of Series 6 of the Hay Festival podcast. This series, we've been sharing some of our recent festival highlights, mixed with revelatory backstage conversations with some of the world's greatest writers and thinkers on some of the nuances and fixations that feed into their writing. Hopefully, like me, you feel like you've got to know our writers on a deeper level this time. We've had a core core of a series. Among many memorable moments, we've heard about Alan Titchmarsh designing Nelson Mandela's garden, Cressida Cowell holding her dad's ankles as he leant over a cliff to look at a bird's nest, Natalie Haynes being walked by a date to an audition that started her comedy career, Anjali Q. Ralph on singing badly, Devi Shridhar nearly killing a friend paddleboarding, Joanne Harris on creating workspaces away from home, David Badil on Twitter feuds, Damon Galgut on observing people, and we found out that Jess Phillips' son ate his own plaster. In today's final episode, I had a very fun chat with historian and broadcaster Janina Ramirez about bad history documentaries, her ability to sleep anywhere, and plans that are very elaborate for a burial that's going to confuse future archaeologists. However, before we get to that, we're starting with an excerpt from her event with Kavita Puri about her new book on reappraising women's stories in the medieval period, Femina. Well, as I say in the book, I say it repeatedly. I, I say two things repeatedly. One is, I know I am coming to this book as a historian with bias, because every historian actually does, but most don't acknowledge it. I was schooled in the empirical kind of facts of history. There's data, there's information, certain things happened and certain people did certain things, and that is the fact. Whereas coming at the past through the different disciplines that I have, art, music, architecture, archaeology, coming at it from a range of humanity of the, the humanities, for me has always been about actually recovering stories. Mm. I often tell the account that if um, you know, five people witness a car crash and you ask each one of those five people to give a witness statement of what they saw, each one will be different from the other. And that is the same with our historical evidence. We have to be aware that we're taking perspectives at all times. And, and to you know, really question our source material, be critical of it. So I do say throughout that this is my view and I am, you know, I hold my hands up. And I also repeatedly call throughout the book for you all to join in. Anyone who picks up this book, this is the start for you to now find a story, a journey, information that you're interested in. And we can now, we can go into our archives, we can go to our local churches or go into museums and find something that grabs us and unravel that. We do our genealogies, our DNA profiles. You know, we're all uncovering our own versions and our own stories in a way we couldn't have imagined 10 years ago even. Um, so yes, I think this book is, I'm trying to become part of the conversation that I hope will carry on after it. And this is not an end point, this is a starting point for others to respond and pick up the baton and do their own thing with it. But it's not just the moment, is it? Because what I found fascinating was how you say that new um, DNA techniques are allowing us to actually reevaluate evidence in a completely new way, which actually brings to light the stories of these women. Yeah, well, you made me laugh earlier, Kavita, because we were talking about this. At what point is a fact a fact? <laughs> At what point you could say, you know, this is something that we can't argue with. Mm. And we were talking about the Burka Warrior. Yeah. 
and this is in in the book i was really really conscious that i wanted the burka warrior woman in does anybody remember the discovery of this these bones in in burka in sweden um yeah i'm seeing some nods excellent it was a huge internet storm wasn't it um the burka graveyard in in sweden is this absolutely unique archaeological find uh, a site that has a, a life of about 200 years so we can date pretty much everything that happens in this site to these 200 years from about 750 to 950 AD and uh, sorry 950 to uh, 1,150 1, AD and in that site are numerous burials hundreds of burials and most of them they're, they're Viking burials most of them have grave goods with them and then there's this grave that stands alone up on the cliff face, massive boulder on top of it, prime location next to the army barracks. And inside that grave was a figure who was probably enthroned or on a horse's saddle, but was seated upright originally. They had a mare and a stallion sacrificed and buried at their feet. And they had a full array of armor, shields, swords, spears, arrows, the works, and gaming pieces, which in the book you'll discover is quite significant, <laughs> a set of gaming pieces placed on their lap. And when the original archaeologist discovered this around the turn of the century, Stolp, he called this burial the Burka Warrior Grave, and he declared it to be the finest Viking warrior burial ever discovered. And over the last sort of 100 years, osteoarchaeologists have returned to the bones. They've had a look and they've gone, oh, I'm not sure about these bones. They've returned again and again. Then finally in 2019, the team did DNA analysis on the bones. They looked for chromosomes and they found only XX chromosomes. So Burka Warrior Man was Burka Warrior Woman. And <laughs> where's the whooper? <laughs> yeah, it was it was huge. But listen to this though, because I I watched this avidly. I mean, I was keeping up to date with every article, everything that was coming up, every bit of media coverage. It went out in two thousand media outlets in one day. It was huge news, and I was thinking, brilliant. Well, for years I've been saying that there were women in in varied positions within Viking society. Um, and so to me, it wasn't a massive surprise, I have to say. The team that did the discovery, that made the discovery, overnight were vilified. They were attacked from all sides by people saying, this is impossible, it's impossible. A woman simply could not have been a warrior. This is absolutely impossible. So much so that they've actually pulled back. They've had to, at one point they went into hiding because they were so bombarded by the hate that was but, but isn't that interesting that even when they're presented with a fact, fact. the DNA yeah. that people would still argue against it, and it wasn't just this one warrior. There yeah. were, that when they looked further, there were many, many no. burials. In fact, the majority were actually women, female graves. Yeah, which then involves a huge reassessment on everything. On, on, on everything. Yeah, I mean, like the trading aspects. I mentioned that as well. So um, everybody. I've done something quite deliberate with the book, and those of you who have your comments, please feel free to consult them. Um, in the contents, <laughs> I love saying that, you've got books you can consult. Um, in the contents, I've deliberately picked chapter headings. Uh, so if I read out the chapter headings, I've got movers and shakers, decision makers, warriors and leaders, artists and patrons, polymaths and scientists, spies and outlaws, kings and diplomats, entrepreneurs and influencers, exceptional and outcasts. And I deliberately picked all words that my, my mind instantly goes to a man mm -hmm. when I hear them. So King, for example, I mean, we'll talk about that. But 
all of those words. When I used to pick up books about women in the medieval past, I was like, mothers, um, you know, nuns. Um, I wanted to show, no, actually, look, they're doing everything as well. And all of that is accurate. They all apply directly to the people in the book. But you're right, you know, in Burqa, trading, we would tend to think of, you know, the, the Viking people are going out on boats. They're going to be big, burly men sailing the seas. What was it? 56% of yeah. the graves with trading items in were female. Yeah. So most of the trade was being done by women. But I think while we're on it, we need to put to bed this whole idea of the Viking hat. And oh, yeah, please. Oh, I do a whole load on that, don't worry. It, it, it never existed, did it? There's no evidence for it. No. I can hear someone out there laughing because they know how I feel about this. <laughs> I have to, I, I, I should just go around saying, hi, my name's Dr. Nina Ramirez. Vikings didn't have horns on their helmets. Thank you. Goodbye. Um, because I have to say it so often. But I thought I'll put it in a book because I say it all the time. I might as well actually put the facts down. No, it was an invention of uh, German opera. Yes. There you are. Um, but there was a very interesting discovery um, in the Burke of Find. And it oh, yes. speaks to something that is a thread throughout your book, which is, surprising as well which is the cosmopolitan nature of medieval society it was a ring with the words Allah written on it which suggests that maybe the warrior had traveled um or even that the warrior was muslim mm -hmm. herself i mean tell us a little bit about that i i mean i find the Allah ring incredible i mean it's a hypo we can we'll never know for sure will we who is that party another proof <laughs> is that you um <laughs> Um, no, the Burqa ring, I think, is is really important because, and there's, there's a number of things I cite actually in there because, uh, again, we know they travelled, we know they traded. It's certainly becoming a party. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a beat to this. Um, with that, it's it's uh, in Arabic as well, and um, we can ask questions of it, we can yeah. probe it, we can look at the bones that were found with it. Although you know, it's it's hard. Some of the bones are in fragmentary state. Fabric. Um, and something like the point I make throughout the book is so much of how we self-express mm. vanishes from the record. You know, I project to you how I feel about myself through the clothes I wear, through the shoes, my shoes, by the way, amazing shoes today, through the shoes I wear, through the jewellery I wear, through the way I wear my hair, through the makeup, all these signals that are completely lost to most records. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we ask where that ring came from? All we can really say and this is why I have to be tentative with all the conclusions I make about these women, is it indicates vast trade connections and cosmopolitan links and communications between communities we may have thought of as disparate. But all the way through the book that's happening, isn't it? There's, so there's yeah. the dirhams that are being made, minted in, in, in Kent. Um, are, uh, Marjorie, he goes to... Marjorie goes to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah. I mean, they're all over the place. They're touching on the edges of, of, of what we would have think thought. I mean, today... Marjorie Kemp, so the book moves around Europe, but I deliberately went to locations where I knew Marjorie Kemp, who's the last character in the book, I knew she'd been to. She had travelled more than most people I know. She'd gone up to Sweden, she'd gone to Poland, she'd gone down to Spain, she'd done Santiago, she'd been through France, she'd been all the way down Italy, and she'd gone over to Jerusalem and around all of the holy sites. I mean, that's, that's a 14th century woman who is traveling more than a lot of us would travel today with planes and all the rest of it. So I think that, yeah, again, it makes us think about the medieval period, maybe it's not a time where everyone lives and dies within sight of their local parish church, you know? They're getting about, they're moving and they're meeting and they're engaging with the world. You could listen to the full event with Kavita and Janina at heyfestival.org forward slash heyplayer. 
I found time with Janina between her adult and children's events to have a conversation about her everyday life when the cameras stop rolling. To kick off, I asked her what her favourite things are to do when she's not working. <laughs> uh, mm. um, I am extraordinarily lazy. I'm a cat person. So I could sleep for 14, 16 hours unbroken if left to my own devices. So I am a total roller coaster of a human being. When I'm awake, I'm going 100 miles an hour and I'm doing everything really, really fast. And honestly, my family find it hysterical. The second I don't need to be awake, I am asleep out cold for hours. And I mean, it, it is a bit of a bone of contention with my family. It's like, where's mummy? Oh, she's absolutely fast asleep on the sofa, dead to the world for the next four hours. So yeah, I mean, I like living like that though. I think it's, um, it, I've always been that way. And um, it's just the way my mind and body work. It's being awake is exciting overexciting there's too many exciting things to do um there's too many exciting i love watching films and box sets and stuff to relax but again that's sort of stimulating my mind i'm always thinking about them and what's going on in them so yeah i'm just out cold is the answer yeah, it's hard to imagine to be honest but um there is an off button it's just a pillow yeah. <laughs> So are you quite good at sort of switching off at the end of the day? Yeah, I never used to be. Um, and then I had kids and I realised if I didn't sleep when I could sleep, then I would never sleep. So I ended up becoming, yeah, I can sleep. I mean, to be honest, I'm lying, tell a lie, because I, I went to school two hours away from where I lived. So I'd have a two hour drive every morning in and out. And as a result, I was getting up at 6 a.m. every day and I was getting home at 6 p.m. every day. So I learned to sleep on a coach full of noisy teenagers that were screaming, shouting, playing music. Um, so I can just switch off and go to sleep everywhere. And it's quite a superpower, really, making TV in particular, because you'll sometimes do 16 hour days. And in between shots, when they're setting up the next camera angle, they'll turn around and I'm just lying on a step, snoring. And they're like, oh, she's uh, asleep again. And it's like, quick power naps, fine. Boom, back up, let's go. So, yeah, I, I do, yeah, I can switch off. That's why you've always got pillow marks on it. That's been, totally yeah, creases, yeah. bed hair. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think it's, it is something that over the years I've had to harness to my advantage. Um, and it means I get stuff done because I work really really hard and fast and this was something I was talking about earlier about perfectionism as well one of the biggest things that was holding me back in my teens and in my 20s was a sense that I had to deliver something that was perfect that was absolutely finished and was beyond improving upon when I realized I was told by um, my PhD supervisor she gave me a book about perfectionists and how perfectionism is actually something that can hold you back and stop you achieving things and I, I read that and then I had a baby and I realised if I just don't make the most of every opportunity and every everything that comes at me, I'm going to miss these opportunities. They're just going to fly past me. So, some, you know, I, I do things fast now. I act. And I think because life is a journey and there will be things that I go on to write or things that I go on to make, there will be improvements upon what's gone before. But otherwise, you know, I've got to keep moving, keep going, keep growing with it. <laughs> Are you tired yet? Have I worn you out? Do you want a little sleep? It's the I've got a pet pain. pillow. <laughs> no, it's what I need. <sighs> so if you can cast your mind back now to childhood, is there a, like a significant moment for you where you kind of realise like history was yeah I tell this story a lot because it was it was literally one of those you know how people who join the priesthood say oh I had my awakening I had that for history um, and it's really funny I have a brother he's two years younger than me and we could not be more different so he works in the city he works with fast-moving finance it's all about now and the future whereas from 
way back, it was always me that was always looking backwards, always. And it happened to me when I was seven and I was in Hampton Court Palace and my family is Polish-Irish um, and I was taking a group of Polish friends around Hampton Court and I was quite precocious of seven. And I'm like, I would do this in my two languages and you know, <laughs> <laughs> look at me. Um, and I was walking through the kitchens from the great, uh, great kitchens at Hampton Court up to the Great Hall. And there's this one th um, threshold step that's completely worn down. And I stood on it and I just caught myself in this second. And it was like a telescope just went off in my mind. And I felt the tens of thousands of people's feet that had crossed over this step and worn it down before me. And I felt that I was part of that and there's more to come after me. And it was this totally, yeah, massive moment of realizing that I can only understand where I am now by thinking about what's come before. And everything from that point onwards has been everything. All my passions, music, literature, art, you know, they all feed back to an understanding of where we've come from and where we're going to, that we're part of a human journey. Um, and, and that's it, you know, that's a true understanding of the humanities, isn't it? That, that we are individuals, but we're moving together as groups, as, as a society. And trying to, trying to get to that, trying to understand what it is to be both unique and individual, but also part of, of, of culture, of a group. I guess it must be really interesting as well because the more you look into things that happened and your interests and stuff, you, you must, it must be mind-blowing to sort of realise like, oh, hang on, this has just been one interpretation of whatever I'm looking at. And, yeah. And, and, and actually there's so much more to be discovered. Absolutely. So in the latest book, um, Seminar, that's, that's coming out in July and that we're having the beautiful, fantastic proof party for here, uh, which is super exciting, I open it with saying you know this this comes with no apology this is not a finished piece like i was saying earlier about perfectionism i'm not trying to write the definitive book that will change people's lives what i'm trying to do is start a conversation where other people feel they can join in and add their perspective to what i'm saying to what other people are saying that we all have something unique to bring to the table and it might be how we look back and see people from the past it might be how we understand the technology, the DNA work that's going on to change the future. But everybody's got to feel that they have a, a, a place they can join in, uh, join into that conversation. So, you know, both at the beginning and the end of the book, I'm saying, you go out now, you go and find something, go and have a look in your local archives, you know, go and look up your family members, but bring your bit, your perspective into this as well. And I think that's what's shifting in our whole approach to the intelligentsia or the, you know, the I'm an academic. I am a paid up Oxford academic and I could be a right toffee idiot if I wanted to be, <laughs> couldn't I? I could be prancing around thinking I'm the big I am with the biggest brain, cleverer than everyone else around me. But that's not the case at all. I think we're all changing our perspective and realising how little we ha have known, how many mysteries have been told to us by the so-called clever people in ivory towers and how we now need to be challenging it ourselves on all levels, grassroots levels. That's why I write for children too, because I want children to start questioning things young. They, I want them to ask these questions. Why have I been told um, this version of history? Uh, is there not a different version of it that I can explore? Yes, and find it, you know. So we, we are changing the dialogue, I think, slowly, all of us together. Um, cool, it's called Windy. It is, yeah, yeah. That's the, div that's the divine gods and goddesses <laughs> agreeing with me. Yeah, Nina. Woo! <laughs> oh, that's so good. Um, do you, have you got to keep any cool kind of artefacts or uh, filming? <laughs> no, <laughs> much as I would love to. No, I have now made a pact with myself because I do go cool places. And when I first started out filming, um, I was a new mum, totally stressed, no money, no time. 
<laughs> poor on all fronts in, in that respect. And so I'd go away and I'd go to places like, you know, say Petersburg or I'd go to Beirut. And I'd be so busy working that I wouldn't stop to take something back with me. But in the last few years, I've made myself take an hour out of filming to go to a particular shop, get, you know, I'll ask someone what's the best shop that I can get something really classic from this area to take home with me. And I have slowly been building up nice little artifacts. I got a gorgeous, um, I got totally fell in love with Crete when I was filming about Knossos. And I got a reproduction um, from this wonderful shop near the museum of the Minoan lion head that they used as a drinking vessel. It's so cool. It's a lot. It's this beautiful marble sculpted lioness. Um, but when you pour, when you, you can fill it up with wine from the back and it pours out of the lioness's nose uh, and it's like 4,000 years old, but it's so beautiful. And I'm a cat lover anyway. So I made myself buy that and bring it home with me. But no, I haven't nicked any historical artifacts, <laughs> sadly. I have had my eye on a few of the Sun Who treasures, but I keep getting um, fleeced when I come out in the museum. Oh, so no. check, check that I haven't stuck it up my sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> Walk out with the belt buckle. Like. You'll be building some kind of brilliant scheme. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got, yeah. Yeah, I've got like a basement full of yeah. all the artifacts that have been going missing for the last 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> Ramirez has got them. No, I haven't, I haven't stolen anything. <laughs> Sure, sure. Sure, sure, I believe She's you, Nina. Right <laughs> I'll show you the treasures later. <laughs> um, what about um, any hobbies that you have? you got anything that you're bad at? Anything I'm bad at? I am bad at organising, um, which is why I'm married to a wonderfully organised man. <laughs> and he hates He's like, taxes time, Nina? No! Back under the duvet. That's your job. Uh, no, I'm bad at yeah, I'm bad at sort of daily practical things. I I'm sometimes wonder how I get from A to B alive most days because <laughs> I'm just I'm somewhere else. Um, and I'm what else am I bad at? I'm not a great cook. I cook, but I don't cook for pleasure. I cook to feed the children that devour everything in my fridge on a regular <laughs> basis. Whereas my husband's like a very flamboyant and experimental cook. I don't bake because I don't have a sweet tooth. Um, and I'm bad at going to sleep at a regular time. I'm a night owl and I would, my normal body clock would be get up at 2 p.m., go to bed at 5 a.m. That would be happy, happy days for me every day. So that's what I'm bad at. I'm bad at functioning like a normal human being. <laughs> but you can sleep anywhere. So that's I can. Yeah. That's terrible. What are you bad at? You're functioning like an actual human being. Oh, oh well. Do you think would be sort of surprised looking back now your younger self be surprised by what you've ended up doing <laughs> um i've had loads of pinch myself moments throughout my life i i am a very grateful human being and i constantly stop and and take stock and experience gratitude for the things that are happening to me i am making a film i have made a film about tutankhamun and the discovery of uh, by howard carter 100 years ago and I found myself in some circumstances with these ancient treasures that no normal person gets to experience. Um, you know, just, just unbelievable encounters that I would never as a child have dreamt I could possibly have. And these things happen, you know, I find myself in places, you know, I was, when I was eight months pregnant, I made a film about the East Window of York Minster. And the East Window of York Minster is the size of a football pitch upwards. And I was out here pregnant and they said, right, Nina, now we're going to get you up at the top of the scaffolding, a football pitch up in the air. And I'm like clambering up in my enormous heels, 
going up the scaffolding, belly out here, and the health and safety reports were like 50 pages long. Oh. Pregnant woman should not be a football pitch <laughs> up in the air. But I, but I did it because I, you know, I got that was something nobody gets to do, and I'm getting to do it. And so, yeah, I. I'm constantly surprised by the things that are happening to me, constantly grateful for the things that are happening to me. But in terms of would my childhood self be surprised, in a funny sort of way, I think they just, I think I am still an extension of the person I was when I was sort of 14, 15, 16. The, the, the sheer love and passion for what I do was there then and it's still there now. And, and so I think I'd recognise myself, definitely. I think, I've, I think I'm still quite childlike in my, my view of the world. <laughs> <laughs> don't think I've changed that much, really. <laughs> Probably just as well. Yes, well, I don't know. I don't. I'm, I could be much more responsible if I grew up a little bit, maybe. <laughs> then I could function like a normal human being. Damn it, that, that was the bit be. that was missing. <laughs> I, I'd rather you keep writing. Oh. <laughs> um, I have to ask, actually, do you find that like, you must watch tons of history documentaries all the time? Funnily enough, no. Do you not? No, I can't. Why? Um... So many of them are so badly made. Oh, <laughs> That's a horrible thing to say. Yeah. Isn't that awful? Don't I sound like a hideous snob? No, um, no, I, I genuinely, I mean, the BBC make amazing programmes. Um, Channel 4, Channel 5, they, they have some incredible stuff. And I will always watch my friends. I'll always watch Alice Roberts. I'll always watch David Olshoga, Simon Sharma, uh, Lucy Wordsley. Whenever any of them are making something, I know it's going to be great. And I will absolutely watch those. But there is so much throwaway history on TV that is just wrong in so many ways and I mean that's part of the reason that I've written Feminar is I'm really frustrated getting old as I get older with how many let's just call it what it is lies our understanding of the past are founded on they are lies or maybe maybe a gentler way of saying it is that so much of the past has been misappropriated and misrepresented down time to the extent that we are so far from the facts a lot of the time that it almost verges on the nonsensical. And then it goes over into the realm of, you know, aliens built the pyramids and, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm just, there are, there are points where it gets a little bit too much for me and I just have to, and, you know, and uh, yeah, I have to just switch off. Because I am just too close to the material a lot of the time as well. And I, it, yeah, it's that thing that, you know, if a camera a camera operator hates watching badly made films because they can see what they should have done and it's a little bit like that when some historical facts are being misrepresented I just go nope that's it switch off let's watch some Lord of the Rings that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's put that on please let's just go with the pure fantastical because we're verging on the edge of it here anyway <laughs> let's just jump in feet yeah. first Game of Thrones it all the way oh. <laughs> I feel like I'm never going to watch anything the same. <laughs> I'll just don't watch it. It's fine. Just watch mine, love. That's yeah. it. You're absolutely <laughs> fine. Um, and what about broadcasting? Do you do you ever get nervous? Um, I get more nervous uh, out in the world of um, the, these sorts of things. So when I talk about a book like Goddess or Femina that I've written, I am nervous to an extent. That I don't get nervous when I'm teaching. I don't get nervous when I'm presenting. I don't get nervous doing radio. But I do get nervous because, to me, they're my thoughts and my feelings raw, laid out page after page after page. And I want people to like them so much. They're, they're things I've birthed, you know? <laughs> my books have come out of years of work, years of kind of thinking about these things and worrying away at problems and issues. 
Um, and then I have to let them out into the world. And I have to be met with sometimes absolute adulation, fantastic Nina, this is wonderful. And sometimes people can be, there's some mean people out there. And um, you know, social media can be a beautiful place. It can also be an absolutely terrifying place. So I think when it's me, my words, my feelings that are in a book, that's when I occasionally get more nervous. But on the whole, I'm quite I'm a positive person. And I've given up on a lot of fears that I used to have because 90%, I say this to my kids, my daughter wants to be a stand-up comedian and my son wants to be a musician. And they both want to perform. And so I make them get on stage at every opportunity. You know, do the karaoke, go for it, tell a joke, do this. And I'm constantly pushing them to get over that fear of performing because it, the worst will not happen. The roof will not collapse. You will not fall over. You will not embarrass yourself. And you'll, if you do, get up and try it again next time anyway. Uh, just keep keep going and so I think I've kind of built myself up a bit of a rhino skin when it comes to these things now you know yeah. had to really yeah uh, but at the beginning I was no don't look at me whereas can't really afford to do that anymore yeah, yeah. <laughs> stuff won't get done yeah well, I, guess, I guess in tv as well they need you to just, just do it just do it just get up do it um I mean there are certain shots when I'm doing like in every one of my documentaries I always take time to write a really thought out end piece where I ruminate on everything I've experienced in the in the process of making it and I, I spend days writing those and percolating them and thinking about them and when I deliver those I always try and do it first take um, straight to the camera without any mistakes without any and that can be quite usually with a cameraman going right you've got three minutes till the sun sets you've got to get it out now and I'm like come on in you've got to get this first take so then sometimes I do get a bit like <sighs> but often I think it comes across well because what I'm doing is genuinely talking to someone sincerely through the lens it's not something overworked it's not something that's um you know over rehearsed or scripted it's it's me trying to tell you something through the lens that I really really want you to know <laughs> and so I, I think that that's important to, but then I get nervous yeah yeah on the whole though mostly I'm okay um, you know what? I'm I'm either awake or asleep. So. <laughs> 100% yeah, I have to ask: Do you ever get grumpy? I can't imagine. I'm not a really a grumpy sleep. person. No, I'm not. No, <laughs> I'm not. If if I'm any of the dwarfs, which one do you think I am, sweet pea? I'm totally sleepy. Um, no, I I don't really get grumpy. I don't get I don't get held up on the small things. Yeah. I don't stress the small stuff really at all. I get annoyed with my kids when they won't get dressed and put their shoes on and go out the door on time. But on the whole, no, just, I'm, a, I'm an extremely, extremely lucky human being. I am living a life I could never have dreamt I'd be living. I have everything I could ever hope for and more in a world where people have nothing. And if I'm walking around being grumpy and griping about my life, well, that's just ungrateful, isn't it? That's just not gracious. And I, I should be happy because I'm lucky. I was just thinking about Spinner Longer, actually, really. Oh, I went to it years or just before COVID, actually. Um, Isn't it the most beautiful, incredible and deeply distressing place all at the same time? It's really it's a really weird thing to imagine because you're on this beautiful island, yep. Yep. which must have been, you know, I'm sure they had geraniums and yep. stores and a community. And then turquoise water. I know. And you're staring at the home you're yep. never allowed to go back to. Anymore. Have you read Victoria Hislop's The Island? I did. Oh, yeah. God, I did like... afterwards. I Me too. Like, I read it afterwards. Yeah, I think probably just as well. Yeah, I'm really pleased too because I think it would have coloured my visit completely. Yeah. But I mean, that. Yeah, but you see, you've touched on something that, that, that kind of fires me up. I mean, everyone's got their nerd thing, haven't they? Everyone's got that thing that makes their heart race fast. Mm. For me, when I'm in a place like that, that's my... 
you know, that's that's my adrenaline kick because I can visualise it at different stages in its history and how it's changed. And, and the human stories that come out of those those buildings, out of those... I mean, they're ruinous buildings for a reason. Yeah. Um, and it is both tragic and also hopeful. You know, there is love and laughter and, and family and things underlying it, but tragedy too. Um, and, I mean, that's that's why I've written the books I've written as well. It, I am all about trying to see humanity and its complexity that we i was brought up in a world i was taught history which was very empirical very diametric there was a good side of baddies and a goodies there was dates there were facts there were you know all this information i was supposed to remember about great men of the past and what they've achieved what i've realized is history is is only storytelling from the past. We are left with fragments, with accounts, with witness statements of people who lived before us. And there is no one answer. There is just the huge complexity of humanity that's come before us. Um, and that's the sort of side of history I find far more relatable, you know? Um, yeah. So we should be doing it a bit differently, I think. I do love it. I have a friend who loves uh, chapel hunting rounds. Oh. And, and we feel okay, Alec okay, is going along with him. And right, give me his what? number because I need a, I need a buddy. Yeah, yeah, he, would, he would love you. He loves it. Um, but uh, we 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 went to a few recently, and because they've got all these lovely visitors books in all of them, and now they're releasing oh. things. COVID twenty seventeen, it's got people coming from different countries, and then for the last two years, like, fascinating. Some people that you notice to come week in week out every single time will write the same thing, and it's like really fascinating. It's a couple of people that you notice who think. I don't think this person's massively literate because the handwriting's really shaky and they wow. just, and really into this is all recent stuff. It's fascinating. Isn't and it? I, every time I go with him, I'm like, we've got to put our names down. And I was like, just imagine we live a, a life of no, which we might not, but or, or we have ancestors who are interested yep. in us. That there might be a thing where they're like, look, on this day, they went here. Leave <laughs> an evidence and trail. Oh my goodness. Know, walking around telling clue stories to each other. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that, I'm sure they won't fantasize that it was like that but <laughs> well, this is the thing i mean just leave a glimmer of yourself like i've got really elaborate plans for my burial um which my poor husband has uh, documented so <laughs> i'm such i'm such a i mean i, I know it's gonna Could really pay people off right yeah so i want to be buried absolutely categorically so people can reconstruct my face in years to come <laughs> and see if they get it right but i want i want to really screw things up for the archaeologist so i want to be buried with like a roman coin in my mouth and then like an iPad behind me <laughs> and then some medieval glass at my feet and just totally screw with the timeline. Stick some weird old datable objects in and around me that are from 2,000 years of history. But then I need to start, start nicking things I from museums, say, don't I? This is, this is the plan. <laughs> in the treasure box. <laughs> it's my burial box. Yeah. But no, don't you think that'd be fun? Because I mean, when I'm, when I'm working with archaeological material, I'm like, aha, yeah. a coin was found underneath the body, which means we could date it exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to the year 725. And I'm like, ha-ha, Yanina Ramirez died in 725 with an iPhone in her. I just think it'd be quite fun to you mess with it. those uh, ropes with a bell as well coming up through the... Uh, yeah, I'm absolutely having that, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and my cats have to come with me, unfortunately, <laughs> Viking style. <laughs> that's, not in the, that's not in the document, I promise. <laughs> Uh, no, it's. I just think it's it's quite funny to think what we leave behind as echoes of ourselves because we only ever get snapshots, like you said. You know, they don't know you're walking around telling poo jokes and that being a fun day out. Or they don't know what you're wearing and they don't know what your hair looks like. They don't know how you self-identify. They don't know what's going on in your head. But all we can ever leave are these breadcrumbs through time. 
And that's better than nothing. And so, you know, when I'm trying to reconstruct these medieval women that I'm doing in, in Femina, I am working with breadcrumbs. But at least I'm looking, at least I'm trying. And scientists, science is moving forward, technology is moving forward, DNA analysis is helping us, archive research. So the picture, and the, you can get slightly bigger, but then isn't it wonderful that we will never exactly know what a person from the past was like? I mean, we never really know exactly ourselves or the people around us at any one time. We're constantly fluid, organic beings. So, yeah, it's fun studying the past and trying to put the jigsaw puzzle together with just a handful of pieces and then sort of guessing. <laughs> and then telling you that I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Hay Festival podcast. Well, that's all from this series. We'll be back soon with more hidden gems with some of the world's best writers and thinkers. Until then, you can watch thousands of Hay Festival events over on our Hay Player at hayfestival.org forward slash hayplayer. It's not too late for you to give the podcast a rating or tell your friends about it either. This podcast was hosted by me, Poppy Evans, and produced by the lovely Shabie Nacharo Achanith. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you very soon.